The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, September 6th, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. President Obama is today in Laos, the Asian nation of Laos. Actually, the landlocked nation, which means that you will not find a Laotian abutting the ocean. But there is the Mekong Delta, which is where most of the Laotian Navy rides, drives, propels its 58 to 68 vessels. That is the official estimate I saw of the size of the Laotian Navy. But it does explain the Mekong Delta. It does explain why there is still this famous saying in Laos that it's not the size of the boat. It is the motion of Laotians. Listen, have I been having sport over the name Laos? Sure, but a different kind of linguistic sport than everyone else who is making a Laos pun at this moment. I'm interested in the demonym, the demonym, the name for a people from a place. Now, I understand, did some research, that Laotian, that might not be the most au courant way of referring to the people of Laos. Some say call them the Lao people, or ethnically, many of them are the Hmong. So President Obama is among the Hmong. But words matter, as the president learned during his trip. He called off a meeting with Philippine President Duterte when the leader said this. This is not a translation. This is him speaking in English. I do not have any master except the Filipino people. You must be respectful. Don't just throw away questions and statements. But that right there at the end, did you hear that? He slipped in the Tagalog. Did you hear that? And apparently what he said was described in some news media outlets as he insulted President Obama's mother. Whoa, that is not cool. But then other news outlets said he called the president a son of a bitch, which I guess is an insult to his mother, although his mother is just happily wandering along being a bitch. It's more of a making note of a bizarre circumstance of a man born to dog. But I'll say this, it's not diplomatic either way, but there's a big difference between just the basic, he insulted the guy's mother and the son of a bitch. And what if there is a Filipino version of son of a bitch, which, you know, is even less bad than son of a bitch. I did some research on this. It seems that what he said was something along the lines of putangina. And putangina is... According to uh, George Stillwater, who blogs a little bit about the Filipino language, or at least blogs about things and decided to write about this a few months ago, it is the dam of Filipino. Yes, it does mean son of a bitch, or perhaps even more accurately, technically, your mother is a whore, not nice. But in that language, it's used very interchangeably with damn, hell, maybe not the worst words you have ever heard, not going out of your way to insult the president's mother. I'm being flip about a lot of this. I mean, everything I'm saying is accurate, but I do swear this to you, and this is a pet peeve of mine. I hate it when the media won't tell you dirty words that actually affect U.S. policy for fear of offending us. If I could have just gotten the lowdown about what the guy actually said, I could better make the judgment of if this was an overreaction or if he really called Obama's mother a whore dog. On the show today, did you know the Wall Street Journal contacted every living member of the president's economic council, Republicans, Democrats, going back to Nixon, and they couldn't find one 
economist who was voting for Trump. Some didn't want to answer their questions. Some said, I'm not voting for Hillary, but I'm also not voting for Trump. But no one said, yes, I'm voting for Trump. Those are the economists. Similar thing happened with the foreign policy hands. 50 stalwarts of GOP administrations past signed a letter saying, no, Trump. And we will speak to one of those today. Her name is Corey Shockey. Interestingly, Corey Shockey's sister works for the Clinton campaign, deputy director of communications. Corey has been a Republican her whole life. She's a foreign policy expert. She says, no Trump for me. And she's even made the bolder step of saying, in fact, I'm with her. Let's now hear why. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity, using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Corey Shockey is a research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. She writes for Foreign Policy. Most importantly, she's a regular panelist on Foreign Policy's podcast, The Editor's Roundtable. But you don't just get that gig by talking good. You had to have done something, and she indeed did and does. She was the director of defense strategy and requirements at the uh, National Security Council under George W. Bush, and she's worked for Republican administrations. She advised the presidential campaign of John McCain. She was the uh, NATO desk officer for a while in the Pentagon. <laughs> Hello, Corey. How are you? Such a pleasure to be with you. It's excellent to talk to you. And I love you on the Foreign Policy Roundtable. And you said something a few weeks ago when talk turned, as it often does, to Trump. You said that not only are you not supporting Trump, which had been out there, but you know of no credible Republican who is. And then you gave a reason why. What was that? I don't remember, to be honest, but I will give an important reason, which yes. is that the president just has wider latitude on foreign and defense policy, independent of the typical institutional constraints in American government. Yes, so you are consistent. That was that... your reason. Yes. Yahoo! <laughs> <laughs> so the point there being right. that if someone is looking at his domestic policy, there's Congress, there's the courts, there are mechanisms. But with foreign policy, there are very few breaks on what a president might want to do. Yeah, especially in crises, the president has a wide autonomy of action. And I think that's the reason that so many national security conservatives are more than worried about a Trump presidency that we consider him unfit for the office. Because of temperament, primarily? Yeah. Is this somebody whose judgment you would trust in 
uh, escalatory circumstances of a crisis. Yes. And also not just what he would do when a crisis was escalating, but you'd have to ask yourself, is he the kind of person to de-escalate or to escalate? And evidence seems to be it's the answer is not to de-escalate. Just watching his inability to discipline his reflexes when insulted on Twitter ought to give people pause. With all the commercials that the Democrats are taking out and the argument, do you trust him with the nuclear codes? Now, normally that's sort of a rhetorical thing and it's not unknown to presidential politics, but do you think it's a fair criticism in this case, specifically the use of nuclear weapons and what you know about, you know, what latitude the president has to use them? Well, I think it's a fair question because it takes known foreign policy judgments to the extreme. You know, if a president makes a mistake in U.S.-Mexico policy or U.S.-Canada trade policy, we have a wide margin of error and can correct the mistake. But in a crisis where a president is making a judgment about the first use of nuclear weapons since 1945, not only ought one to have concerns about Donald Trump's impulse control, but his capacity for thinking through the second and third order effects of rash decisions is, I think, at best unproven. Well, what about the idea that he will, if elected president, have a secretary of state or national security advisor or people with experience who've done the job who can advise him well? I don't see any evidence that Trump takes other people's good advice when it's offered to him. Can you think of any examples? I can't. Perhaps in a real estate or casino context, yes, but not in a presidential. <laughs> well, what, a, what about the idea, and you would know this, you know, I, I was thinking of this when reportedly his son offered the uh, vice president slot to John Kasich and said, well, you could oh, be in charge so of, yeah, you could be in charge of foreign and you could be in charge of domestic, what will the president be in charge of making America great. But let's say Donald <laughs> Trump was primarily unconcerned with the details. Can you make the case you've been inside these uh, quarters of power? Can the Pentagon, can the NSC, can many of these institutions essentially run themselves if they have competent people at the top? No, because the course of policy matters so much. You know, it is true that the career professionals in the Foreign Service and the intelligence community and the American military can do a whole lot of things to keep trains running on time. But somebody has to determine uh, where the train is going and somebody has to provide coal and fuel for the engine. And nobody but the president can provide those kinds of policy judgments that bound the range of activity. So no, I don't think they can run an autopilot. Okay, let's say Trump is elected and we have a whole raft of prominent conservatives, people who've served in Republican administrations right now on the record as that would be a bad thing, saying I do not support him. But at that time when he is elected president, do you then heed the call of public service? Will people reluctantly fill those roles if asked? Do you think would you, for instance? I wouldn't, but there are a lot of good principled people who will. And that's good for the country. One thing that a lot of conservatives will have to weigh if offered jobs in a Trump administration is whether they believe that he will make judgments consistent with good inputs. And again, I haven't seen evidence of it. So in addition to the fact that my opposition to him 
is about character (laughs) and about the disrespect he shows to our fellow Americans. I think for people who would be willing to serve in an administration, a really hard question is, am I going to lend my credibility to policy outcomes I cannot affect? Or do I have a responsibility to the country, even if that proves true that I can't affect them, to step into those responsibilities and try to? And I think good people will come down on many different sides of that issue. I've heard the argument that the GOP has itself to blame for Trump for things like its immigration policies, dog whistles to white grievance. But do you think that there are any aspects of policies that the Republicans have advocated over the years that gave rise to the Trump phenomenon? Yes, I do. We have lost credibility with our own voters because the solutions we have been offering aren't solving their problems to their satisfaction. People are up in arms about trade policy because they are ascribing to trade the loss of jobs that are partly due to trade, partly due to technological innovation. And because we aren't talking about our country's economic future in a way that makes, just to take Tim Pawlenty's example, that makes uh, his father who was a delivery truck driver that could support a stay-at-home wife and several children, those jobs have gone away in the American economy, and they're not coming back. And none of us have explained to Tempulente's father, what is the future of your working life? Although you do raise the specter of a Tim Pawlenty's father town hall meeting. That would be a political event. <laughs> well, I think I watched that. Just all the candidates surrounding themselves pitching the Tim Pawlenty's father. I want to. I want to. You know, ask, I yeah. wince at that example because for both my sister and me, persuading our mother is actually the standard of can you deliver the American people? Because our mom is contrary and she is. Not easily persuaded, even by two women that she loves. Yeah, and we should say that uh, your sister is Christina Shockey, who is Deputy Communications Director for Hillary Clinton. And so it's kind of (laughs) nice that you'll be voting for the same candidate. Or will you be voting for Clinton or just not Trump? Uh, I am, with great misgivings, going to vote for Clinton. So for the first time in our lives, my sister and I are actually going to vote for the same candidate. I think most conservatives are in the decision space of opposing Trump, certainly the national security conservatives, opposing Trump, but finding Clinton so distasteful that they're going to write in an alternative candidate. And I was luxuriating in doing that same thing until I watched the polling on the British EU referendum. The polls were off by 12 points in many cases, in the referendum. And it made me worry that this may be such an unusual election cycle that polls will be quite substantially inaccurate and that people who think they can cast a safe vote in opposition and not bear any responsibility for Trump's election, I think those people may be mistaken. I think it could well be this is an election where Every vote really counts. What of uh, Hillary Clinton's stated foreign policy positions gives you the most pause? I think she was not very good when she was Secretary of State. You know, she likes the policy assessment process, supposedly. Mm -hmm. And yet she made a shockingly bad number of 
not just decisions, but bad follow-through on things like the Iraq drawdown. Remember how there was supposed to be this enormous civilian mission in Iraq? Yeah. Uh, and Clinton was crowing about it was going to be the largest American civil diplomatic undertaking since the Marshall Plan, and then didn't do it. There was supposed to be a civilian surge that paralleled the surge of military troops in Afghanistan that never occurred. Um, she rightly castigated the Bush administration for inadequate planning and execution of stability operations in Iraq. And then she proceeded to make the exact same set of mistakes in Libya. And we should note, I've, I've read a contribution you made to a journal where you were talking about basically the failures of both uh, the Bush administrations and the Obama administrations. And, and you were talking about how strategy is matching up the means to the end. And Bush failed in one way and Obama failed in the other way. Bush defined, as you writing, Bush defined political end states for Afghanistan and Iraq. In other words, he wanted some version of a flowering Jeffersonian democracy, but they were not achievable by the means he was willing to invest. Whereas President Obama gave primacy to ending American involvement in the wars, irrespective of the political end state. So Obama wanted to draw down and didn't think through what would happen. Where does Hillary Clinton fall on this divide? I am much more comfortable with her ability to determine end states than I am with President Obama's. And I think she does not share President Obama's view that military force can't achieve anything. But I think she may, in fact, have the same kinds of problems that President George W. Bush did, uh, very ambitious end states that you don't then keep your shoulder to the wheel and adequately resource to get you there. So I want to ask you a couple more questions. I know you've edited this book called Warriors and Citizens, American Views of Our Military. And you have, we talked about your sister, you have an older brother who's an Air Force veteran. Is that right? That's right. Okay. So in the latest poll, Trump leads Clinton by 10 points among military families. And whereas the GOP normally does have this advantage, when you look at this year with Trump trailing by wherever, somewhere between 10 and five points, it's actually a bigger gap than it is in some past years. And my question to you is, why do you think military families are not as bothered by Trump or more bothered by Clinton or however that manifests itself than has been uh, true? in recent history? My guess is that Clinton has a long public record that military folks know. And in many cases, military families uh, and military voters tend to be very principled voters. So, so they wear their morality close to their vote. And every single person who holds a security clearance understands very clearly that they would be in jail if they did what Hillary Clinton and a lot of her staff did. And and that's hard for a lot of people to get past. Okay. And this will be now the most pointed question in this interview, but it's this. So you've come out against Donald Trump for reasons of temperament and intellect and uh, decision-making, and yet you were an advisor to the McCain 2008 presidential run, which is to say the McCain-Palin ticket. Why did these concerns about Sarah Palin not manifest themselves in a similar way in 2008? <laughs> Let me put your question even more sharply. Yeah. How is it that I wasn't afraid of Sarah Palin, but I am afraid? of Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. It should tell you something that I think he's that much more dangerous than she would have been. 
Okay, so you're using it to amplify your concern about Trump. <laughs> She's even worse than, and I'm someone who supported Palin. This is what you're saying. <laughs> Other possible answers include the difference between VP and P. Yes, I was just going to say that. The other thing about it, though, is that I actually think Sarah Palin was the leading edge of the phenomenon among conservatives that has brought you Donald Trump's candidacy. The disaffection, you know, the belief that any average guy on the street could do the job as well as anybody running the government could do it. The discrediting of elites, the breadth of support that those attitudes would have among conservative voters has really been a surprise to me. And I think is a failure of the establishment that we haven't addressed the things they're worried about. Corey Shockey, research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, veteran of uh, George W. Bush's White House, panelist on Foreign Policy's Editor's Roundtable, and for the first time ever, will not be canceling out her, Christ her sister Christina's <laughs> vote. Hey, thank you so much, Corey. It was a pleasure. Ah, uh, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. And now the spiel... The birthday parties of my youth are merely the Thursdays of my children's lives. Let me explain. We rented a big house in a sequentially numbered zip code, Coastal City, with three other families. The size of the party allowed for extravagances that no amount of calls to action regarding mattress purchases or razors or postage could normally afford me. Big house had a home theater. I programmed a theme series consisting of space balls, dodgeball, and meatballs. We had a pool and a pool table. We had a beach we could walk right onto. We had peaches and bananas you could pick right off a tree, and we had a video game. I mean, that's what I thought when I booked the house. I saw it. It was Miss Pac-Man. But when I got to it, I realized it wasn't just Miss Pac-Man. There were more than 20 video games inside that you could choose to play from. And they were all pulled from the era of Buckner and Garcia. Three generations of Pac-Man. Four Donkeys Kong, Dig Dug, Galaxian, Galaxian 2, doing it right after Dad wussed out, Galaxian 3, Operation Enduring Galaxian. Now, I remember, I had a 10th birthday party, and the whole birthday was this special arcade in town where you could play video games for free. They weren't the newest video games, but they were for free, for an hour of free video games, then cake, then singing, then one more game, then your mom picks you up. This was my birthday, my once a year special day, and it was great. This is my children's Thursday. But my point isn't that things were simpler in my time or that these days kids have it easy. In fact, I think they may have it hard because things aren't simple and there's nowhere to retreat from the unsimple. 
The game I played most this week was Mr. Do. Now, this is not Mr. Do's castle. You might be thinking Mr. Do's castle. You might be asking, how'd this guy get a castle? Did clearing the land of cherries and cheesecake earn Mr. Do a castle? Mr. Do's castle is just weird, right? Mr. Do has a hammer. Obviously, they saw what Donkey Kong was doing. Yet the hammer can't hurt the adversaries. It can only create divots in which the monsters fall into. Oh, no, not monsters. I investigated this. The Asian title of the game is Mr. Do versus Unicorns. But even though Mr. Do has a castle, Mr. Do is still wearing his clown outfit. Come on. What man, obviously wealthy enough to have a castle named after him, would still insist on preserving a clownish demeanor? Now this is a castle. Castle, the crown jewel of Atlantic City. So we're not talking about Mr. Do's castle. We're not talking about Mr. Do's wild ride. Do you know there are four Mr. Do games? No, you probably didn't, unless you were exactly between the ages of 8 and 12 in 1983. You did not care. You do not care. I get that. I get your complaint. I promise you I will not trap you in someone else's nostalgia. I'm building towards something. Mr. Do is a clear ripoff of Pac-Man. It worked. It remains the 10th highest grossing video game of all time. Mr. Do had a power pellet that felled his monster pursuers. Clear a field of cherries, not dots. There was a food prize in the middle worth extra points. But my kids and I became obsessed with Mr. Do. Mr. Do, fulfilling, captivating, engrossing entertainment. It was perfect. We didn't want for a first shooter perspective or cheat codes or narrative. Is narrative unnecessary? No, that is not what I'm saying. Here's an analogy. In the early days of film, I would guess that no actor ever asked, what's my motivation? He just knew that it was cool to move on the screen and people would see you moving. Now, no one argues that film acting isn't an art form, and I'm not saying that modern video games aren't amazing. I'm not even arguing that they're not art. But the complete thrill of playing this game, this by today's standards, this ancient game gave me an insight. Video games became more sophisticated because there was no chance that video games weren't going to become more sophisticated. Computers got better. The technology deepened. The talent pool who wanted to program games grew. The market increased. And once newer, cooler games came out, you couldn't look away. The same with better special effects in movies. The same with news on your phone, right in your pocket, instead of sitting on your front porch the next morning. But what was good about the older, simpler ones wasn't made less good by more sophisticated versions of any of the things I'm talking about. In fact, I think sophistication is a false god of progress. A few years ago, Stephen Johnson, the writer, public intellectual on Media Matters, came out with a book, and its title was Everything Bad is Good for You, How Today's Popular Culture is Actually Making Us Smarter. The argument rested on the idea that the proliferation of characters in TV show correlates to sophistication. F Troop, that had like seven characters. The Sopranos has like 57. The Sopranos is more sophisticated. Now, by this logic, Waiting for Godot is less sophisticated than the musical version of American Psycho, therefore less good. It has its limitations. But I think it's entirely wrong. I think all this stuff, all the new TV shows, all the new video games are better, but I think their being better really doesn't have much to do with their being more sophisticated. I think it has to do with all the evanescent reasons that art improves and also the practical reason that the audience understands the art better. It needs less hand-holding and the market allows for more experimentation. Sophistication is only a byproduct and I believe it's a byproduct with a cost. Our escapism 
is less simple, and I think that takes its toll. Now, I do not want to go back to a time when our only choices were Mr. Do and the morning broadsheet, but there is a cost when all of our experiences play in the same sophisticated space. When to access an article, you have to remember a passcode or download a new app or remember which charger works with which device. I would not want to revert back to a time when we are ignorant of all the potential dangers of the world. And yet, we left our vacation home. We left Mr. Do behind, having been informed of a danger that never came to be. Now remain expected to cause strong winds and coastal flooding along the mid-Atlantic states. And there are some signs that it may strengthen, creating hurricane-force winds over Labor Day. Yeah, that didn't happen. Here was the impact in Boston. The surf choppier than usual, but not enough to keep anyone out of the water. Look, I'm glad I knew there was a possibility of a storm. How can you say otherwise? But they kind of got it wrong because no outlet is incentivized to downplay the potential destruction of a weather event. You only make money for hyping that. With all weather events and news, the news is either accurate or overhyped. It's never underhyped. And while ignorance isn't a solution, it accrues. We pay attention to the tropical depression watch that turns to a tropical storm warning that has the potential for a hurricane watch, but eventually gets downgraded to a tropical breeze eventuality. And it takes up some of our attention, as does a knifing on a train in Switzerland or bee colonies or stuff that no one even knew to care about, like desalination and gentrification and anti-vaccination and debathification and female genital mutilation and Crimean annexation and body type discrimination and changes to your health maintenance organization and currency speculation, butterfly habitat degradation, and the fact that they invited Ann Coulter to roast Rob Lowe. I mean, that part doesn't rhyme, but what the hell is up with that? And the retreat to entertainment isn't a retreat. It's, oh, no, 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 no. Stannis is harnessing the power of the Lord of Light. Bran is the wog. It's all explained in season four, which was the first half of book three. Here, listen to this podcast. Oh, no, that was the wrong one. Now this current season is ruined. Sorry. Look, I happen not to experience much anxiety. That's just who I am. I'm in a position to observe but not suffer from this sophistication proliferation. But I see the victims all around me. I see it expressed in polls about right track versus wrong track. I see it in rising rates of prescription drugs to stave off the worry. I see it in ubiquitous references to my therapist advises or my yoga teacher instructs or my presidential candidate tweets. So I would advise a retreat. Maybe your Mr. Do is a crossword puzzle or your Mr. Do may be yoga or mindfulness. My Mr. Do is a weird guy in a clown suit trying to eat cherries while chased by monsters. The fact that there's a homeless man in the West 30s who matches that description is mere happenstance. What I'm saying is this. I found my Mr. Do. Now you do the same. That's it for today's show. Just producer Chris Berube's Mr. Do is Burger Time, which inspired him to get into his first profession— building ladders to chase condiments. Just producer Mary Wilson's Mr. Do is Spy Hunter. She doesn't like the game, but Henry Mancini theme songs were banned in her house, and this was a backdoor. Steve Lichtai, the executive producer of Slate Podcast, Mr. Do is track and field with its reliance on players frantically tapping buttons, thereby replicating the very aerobic activity it was meant to mimic. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network. His Mr. Do is Dig Dug. Ever since he was a young boy, he enjoyed inflating lizards with air until they exploded, and this gave his outlet credibility. 
the gist. My Mr. Do is Dr. Mo, which is Mr. Do fan fiction told from the monster's perspective. Oom um, peru de peru du peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>